here today, and as I had an occasion to write in a letter recently, um, and I've told some of you, uh, Siege is just an extraordinary organization. It represents a really inspiring and actually quite singular moment at our law school, and I hope in the broader legal community, but I actually wonder if it's just our law school. Um, it is an incredibly collaborative organization with deep moral commitments and uh, very little nonsense. Um, and it's, uh, it's been a, an absolute inspiration and source of motivation for me as a, as a scholar and as a member of your community and for other faculty as well. So I commend you for yet another week of incredible programming contributed to the law school. So what I want to do today is just make a few uh, introductory framing comments and then introduce our panel. Um, so I want to start the, the symposium by reflecting on a comment that I recently heard from a very senior retired official from a water utility. And he commented that because regulation in the United States, regulation of water was so sophisticated that when we think about what law and lawyers have to do on water issues, that work lies abroad. And this comment really struck me because while it is absolutely true that global water poverty is devastating, and it may be true, although I'm not entirely sure, that the United States has the most sophisticated uh, regulatory structure for, for uh, governing water. I, I'm not sure about that, but let's just stipulate that it's up there in the world. Nonetheless, his comment represented blindness to at least two critical issues that, that um, weigh very heavily on the Central Valley and on rural areas across the country. So the first of these issues is access to, to regulated water. So, or more specifically, lack of access to regulated water. So even if our water systems, our public utilities, our water utilities are managed and regulated according to um, state-of-the-art understanding of um, contamination and public health, which I'll say something about in a second because I don't think that's true. But even if that was true, we have such a devastating access problem for families that lie off that grid that they are simply not served by that regulatory structure. So these are the families that pull groundwater, unregulated groundwater out of their, um, out of well systems into their homes. They are largely rural, they are largely extremely high poverty. And while public utilities are subject to some amount of monitoring, some amount of regulation, this kind of off-the-grid water consumption um, may or may not be subject to any monitoring. And even when you get bad news, and because you have actually um, conducted some amount of monitoring for safe drinking water, there's very little stick for doing anything about it. So it's really not anybody else's problem. So we have very severe enforcement problems, very severe quality control problems in this, um, this off-the-grid realm. Um, so that's, that's one kind of devastating problem. The second is that um, I take issue with the premise that the regulated world of water is sort of a job well done and behind us. The world of chemicals that we use and rely on, particularly in agriculture, continues to change and evolve. And new contaminants and new combinations of contaminants and new concentrations of contaminants show up in water supplies and simply are not captured by existing water regulations. So just as technology in chemicals and in pollutions continues to progress, so too must regulation follow it, or maybe better yet, precede it. Um, so, so these are sort of my concerns, and I think his comments sort of help um, remind us why, um, as good as it is in the United States compared to the rest of the world, we have a lot of work to do. 
So in the Central Valley, to sort of bring this down to a human level, which all of our panelists are going to do beautifully for us as well, um, this, these, this sort of off-the-grid problem and this under-regulated world add up to at least three kinds of problems for homes and for individuals. The first is devastating health problems related to the consumption of contaminated water. I'll leave it at that. It is truly nothing short, can be truly nothing short of, of devastating serious public health concerns. Second is very high household costs that amplify the, um, the uh, problems of poverty when families have to protect themselves by purchasing bottled water. And some of these implications will be obvious to you, but I'll add one that may not have been obvious, which is that research is increasingly showing that because of the high cost of bottled water, families are actually purchasing cheaper forms of hydration in, as a substitute for bottled water. What are those? Soda. So you get an obesity problem and the public health problems associated with that as a sort of indirect consequence of lack of clean water. And finally, these areas without access to clean water and uh, often yield, and I've seen this all across the country in my research in rural areas, yield improvised household water storage systems. So families can't afford bottled water in those plastic things and they buy it in bulk at the grocery store. So instead, they actually fill um, big barrels or cisterns at uh, the municipal water utility station, drive it to their homes and store it there for several days. Well, that's an invitation for parasites, which leads families to two choices. You either consume water that used to be pure but is no longer pure because it has been stored in a way that is unsafe, or you drown out those parasites in bleach and you consume high levels and purchase high levels of household bleach. So, I, so those are some of the sort of um, real-life consequences of these, of these issues. And um, without further ado, I want to introduce our panel that is going to really help us understand the parameters of this problem in the Central Valley. So first we're going to hear, well actually, uh, well first we're going to hear from Carolina Ballas, who uh, just completed her PhD, and I feel like we should give her a round of applause, but I'll, <laughs> I'll spare, oh yeah, good. <laughs> Because December 2011, I'm sure it's been a long run. So that, uh, that is the title of her, um, her dissertation, Just Water, Social Disparities and Drinking Water Contamination in California's San Joaquin Valley. And she used participatory action research um, models in doing this work, which meant that the community water center that we're going to hear from was the, um, the source of many of the research questions that Carolina pursued in her, in her dissertation research. So her research at this university was directly responsive to issues on the ground, which is an inspiring and um, uh, important way to think about our research obligations in scholarship and in our education. Um, and she's currently a research scientist with the Community Water Center, which is continuing this symbiotic relationship between, um, between research and action. Um, secondly, we're going to hear from Joanna Mendoza, who is 16 years old and uh, is from the town of Cutler Rossi. Um, she, uh, she works for an organization called Agua, which I'll leave her to tell us about today. Um, but she, uh, she loves playing basketball, but obviously she is a, a public servant to her community as well. Um, and she actually would like to, she, she wrote that when I go to college, I would like to study to become a pediatrician. Um, because of her um, immediate and personal exposure to the significance of health at, um, in childhood and the, the central significance to clean water, of clean water in public health. Um, finally, we have Laurel Firestone, who, um, as, uh, as many people in the room will be delighted to hear, was an Equal Justice Works Fellow after she graduated from Harvard Law School. She did an EJW Fellowship with the, um, uh, with, uh, the Center for Race, Poverty, and the Environment in Delano, and then spun off and was a co-founder of the Community Water Center, where she's a, um, a co-founder and co-director of 
um, of this project, which we're going to hear a lot about. And the Community Water Center is anchored in Visalia and has been proudly making trouble there since <laughs> 2006. <laughs> uh, and um, and I, as a, as a teacher of local government, I'm delighted to see that Laurel actually serves on the Tulare County Water Commission, one of the many local government bodies that, that run this, this world we're about to hear about. So thank you. Carolina. <laughs> So the mic is actually for radio purposes, so you, if you're wondering why you don't hear speakers. <laughs> but can the people in the back hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, great. So yes, the title of my dissertation and talk today is Just Water, Social Disparities and Contaminated Drinking Water in San Joaquin Valley. And um, my role in the panel is to kind of give an overview of some of the health and environmental justice aspects of the problem, and then my co-panelists will talk about more hopeful solutions components. So I'll give you sort of a taste of some of the problems with drinking water. Um, we can go ahead. So as um, Professor Anderson was saying, access to clean drinking water is a challenge in the U.S. We, there is sort of a general conception that it's a problem in the global south, and people often give a blank stare when you, think of, when you say that there's issues in the U.S., but there's been a number of newspaper articles and grassroots efforts highlighting the, the numerous problems, whether it's poor implementation of water laws, aging infrastructure, uh, contaminants in school drinking water. There's a host of issues that we face in the U.S. Can go on, um, and you could just pull them all up. So this matters from a public health perspective. Some of this is repeating some of what um, Professor Anderson was saying, but we need to consider what are communities and individuals exposed to as they drink contaminated drinking water, and what are the associated health effects of that. And it also matters, um, next point, in terms of the economic impacts on community well-being. There's costs of mitigation at the water system level, but also that households face, and there are health costs at the personal level. Um, so just to kind of ground us a little bit in the San Joaquin Valley, this is one of many communities, and we'll hear about others, but Tuleyville is a small, unincorporated community with about 300 people, mainly Latino families. And um, circled here in red is Tuleyville, and as you can see, it's surrounded by fields of agriculture. And Tuleyville, the one well is in the other picture, their one functioning well, and they've had persistent um, exceedances of the nitrate maximum contaminant level for many years. And it sort of highlights the problem on multiple levels. One, that there's a persistent problem that the community's been unable to address. And it's also rather ironic because this uh, dark line over here is the Friant-Kern Canal, which brings very clean Sierra water to the farming community to irrigate agriculture. So residents in Tuleyville often ask, you know, we have this problem, why can't we tap into this alternative source of water? But that leads to this whole other set of questions around water politics and water treatment. So I like to highlight Tuleyville because it's these small unincorporated communities that face some of the biggest challenges as we think about solutions. So we can keep going. So in general, there's been very little research on um, drinking water and impacted populations. Um, that we could ask questions like who's impacted, what are the characteristics of communities from a research perspective. And the lens that I've taken is to look at the connection between the race and class of a community and water quality. So from, uh, next point, from an environmental justice perspective, I imagine most of you in the room have that general framing, but here we'd be thinking about is there a disproportionate impact or harm felt by one group or community. So we can think of it in terms of low-income communities or communities of color. Um, so with that in mind, uh, the research that I'm going to talk about today asked uh, two main questions, looking in the San Joaquin Valley at water systems, which also define communities, basically. Um, we asked, are there higher concentrations of nitrates and or arsenic in low-income communities or in communities of color? So the, the underlying question that has generally been discussed is, if this question is not true, then is it really just that it's small systems facing a problem? And that's generally been the pushback on the issue, that it's just scale. There's nothing about environmental justice involved. And so 
we'll, we'll come back to this question, but I wanted to point out, you know, oftentimes throughout my work, people would just think of it as an issue of scale, and it's, it's not, even though scale is really important. So for the rest of the talk, I'll give a little bit of background on the study area and the key contaminants and um, present some sort of brief results of nitrate work and arsenic work that we did and end with implications of those research findings. Um, so why arsenic and nitrate? They're among the top contaminants in drinking water in the San Joaquin Valley. The other two are total coliform and dibromochloropropane. There's increasing number of contaminants that aren't even regulated that aren't on this list that we don't have to test for with the Safe Drinking Water Act. But nitrate and arsenic are two of the key ones. Um, and nitrate above 45 milligrams per liter is an acute contaminant. It's particularly risky for infants and pregnant women. There's um, blue baby syndrome and reproductive health effects are sort of the key health effects with nitrate. And with arsenic, it's at chronic levels of exposure. So over a lifetime of exposure, it's linked with skin, lung, bladder cancer. And increasingly, research is showing that even short-term, there's short-term effects of ingesting high levels of arsenic. Um, so nitrate in the San Joaquin Valley uh, derives primarily from agriculture, uh, using it as a fertilizer source. And it's one of the major sources of groundwater contamination. Um, we have some of the highest nitrate levels in the state in the San Joaquin Valley. And of, of all the Safe Drinking Water Act violations, the maximum contaminant level violations in the state, 75% come from sources in the San Joaquin Valley. Um, and all of this is a problem because 95% of the population relies on groundwater. So it's this very contaminated groundwater and it's the key drinking water source. Um, arsenic is also a problem. Arsenic is mainly naturally occurring in the valley. And since 2006, what's interesting is the standard was tightened for health purposes. It was lowered from 50 micrograms per liter to 10. So that's a stricter standard. And the idea was that it would be more health protective. But what we'll look at in the research findings is there's a cost to that health protection because it means now communities need to come into compliance with a tighter standard. Um, and so this map, I don't know how the colors show up, but um, it shows the spread. There's about 16% of all community water systems in the valley exceed the new standard as opposed to less than 1% we're exceeding the old standard. So it brings up a regulatory challenge to think about. Um, and then just to lay on top of the drinking water piece in terms of the demographics in the valley, it adds another complication when we think of sort of different vulnerabilities, whether it's socioeconomic vulnerabilities. Um, the, the valley is one of the poorest regions in the US outside of Appalachia. 20% of the population is below the poverty level. And there's multiple exposures to other contaminants. It's not just drinking water contamination. There's air pollution, there's toxic siting, there's pesticide exposure. So from a public health perspective, there's a cumulative um, health risk to these multiple contaminants. And drinking water is one piece of the story. Um, so getting into the, the research that we did, our study focused on community water systems, and you can basically think of that as a community. Uh, in the East Bay, we're part of um, East Bay Municipal Utility District, so there's several cities, but in the Valley, Tuleyville is one community, that's one community water system. Um, but the formal definition is that it's a public water system that provides water to at least 25 residents or has 15 connections year-round. So this schematic, you have a source of water, surface water, groundwater, it flows into a treatment facility, goes into your distribution system, and those houses tap into it. Um, you can click it twice. So we basically were using um, monitoring results from the Department of Public Health to estimate concentration levels of contaminants in the distribution system. You can keep going. Uh, we also looked at maximum contaminant level violations, so I'll just define that term because I use it a lot, but that's basically there's a threshold above which the Safe Drinking Water Act says it's not safe to provide that water. Uh, so for nitrate, it's 45. For arsenic, it's now 10 micrograms per liter. Okay, so the nitrate study, just a snapshot. 
Uh, there were 327 systems in our sample from 1999 to 2001, and we estimated nitrate concentrations, used um, different statistical models to look at the relationship between nitrate concentration, race, and class. And race, we looked at percent Latino of that community, and class, we used home ownership as a proxy for wealth. Um, and we controlled for all these other things. I don't know if this is a statistics crowd, so we can <laughs> talk about that later, but um, you can go ahead. Um, so these are some of the results from that work. This shows of all the systems in our sample, 3% were red, meaning they were over the MCL. 10% uh, were over half of the MCL. 87% were in the OK zone, less than half the MCL. You can keep going. You can just skip that. Um, and then here, descriptively, um, as you go down this y-axis, you're increasing in percent Latino of a community, and on the x-axis, it's the percent of community water systems. So descriptively, you can see as you go down, as you increase in percent Latino, there's more yellow and red. There's more systems that are over half the MCL. But if you move to the next slide, um, our regression results confirmed that sort of descriptive pattern. And what we found is that small community water systems with more Latinos had higher nitrate levels. So it wasn't just that small systems have higher nitrate levels, it's small, highly Latino systems. So um, each percent Latino was associated with an increase of 0.44 milligrams uh, per liter in nitrate. You can keep going. Um, briefly, the, the key implications here, just going back to that study question, is we do see there's a distributional inequity in terms of race. And there's this invisible middle category, which maybe we can discuss later, which is over half the MCL, that yellow group that I showed, is technically in compliance with the standards, but it's approaching an uh, unsafe level. So we can return to that. And then the arsenic study, um, I'll be brief in terms of time, but we looked at two things. We looked at arsenic concentration, but we also looked at how, which systems were complying and which systems were out of compliance with the standard. Um, and so here what we found is that arsenic levels are significantly correlated with percent home ownership. So the, the higher the home ownership, so higher socioeconomic status in a community, the lower the arsenic levels are. And we also found that high homeownership is associated with the lower chance of having an MCL violation. So again, we're basically seeing if you have less economic resources in a community, you're more likely to be out of compliance with the standard. So here, the implication with arsenic is that it's, again, it's not just small communities, but it's small, poorer communities that have a dual burden of high exposure and higher, higher non-compliance rates. Um, so we have that strong correlation, and the compliance piece is important because as we think of solutions, it's basically communities with fewer economic resources that are needing to bear the burden of complying with these safety standards, and that brings up many questions when we think about how do we solve this at a big picture level. So just to conclude, um, with both nitrate and arsenic, we see evidence of disproportionate exposure. <coughs> Um, scale doesn't explain everything, so it's not just an issue of size. And arsenic exemplifies the importance of looking at both exposure burdens that communities face and the compliance burdens. Um, and so, you know, there's many types of solutions we can think about, but thinking of sort of multi-level solutions. Water systems need targeted resources, but at a regional level, we need to think about source water protection and at the same time, we need to think about how can you connect all these small systems into potentially a regional system that can help um, defray some of those costs that individual systems are facing. Um, so just to end, the Valley exemplifies these challenges with drinking water. And at the same time, as uh, Laurel and Joanna will talk about, there's also many possibilities as community groups and policymakers are growing more aware of the need to address these challenges. So with that, I'll end. I acknowledge Community Water Center. That's my, I'll be transitioning into working with them, so that's exciting. But um, they were key, a key part of developing this research and um, many other people. And if there's questions, my contact information's up there. Thanks.
So I, I'm actually going to start by introducing Joanna Mendoza. Um, she, as um, <clears throat> was already introduced, um, is, lives in the town of Cutler, um, goes to Cutler Rossi High School, um, and has been a real leader in water activism in the San Joaquin Valley, um, educating decision makers and, um, and standing up for communities, both in her local community, up in Sacramento, and around the region, um, and really is, is part of Agua and, the, and Youth for Agua and the growing movement to um, ensure that we have water justice. So with that, I'll give it to Joanna. Okay, before I get started, um, for a show of hands, um, and the people in the back, can you hear me? Okay, good. Um, as a show of hands, uh, do any of you have the same water issues that I do as in not being able to have access to safe drinking water or have any children that go to school that can't have access to safe drinking water? Show of hands? No. So um, that's what I'm here to talk to you about, like, well, what I have, what I'm living through. Okay, well, as Laurel said, um, I am, my name is Joanna Mendoza. Um, I am 16 years old. Uh, I do go to Cutler Arosi, but the high school is actually called Arosi High School. Um, and my community is Cutler. And um, in that community, um, our water is contaminated with DBCP, um, which is a pesticide that was actually banned back in the 1970s, but is still found in our drinking water supply. And so um, for me, it's really hard to deal with having contaminated water because I'm not able to drink the tap water, and neither is other people that live in my community as well. And um, not only that, but also in Orosi, there's contamination of nitrates, which um, can, is a pesticide that could cause cancer. And there have been some people that have been contaminated by that drinking water and have, do have cancer right now at this moment. Um, so that's a really hard thing for me to live through, having to see that family members and friends and their parents are diagnosed with cancer. Um, uh, I am part of a group called Youth for Agua, which is with the Coalition Agua, with the, C, the CWC. Um, and what I do, um, well, as the group, as what we do, um, we uh, try to, well, we don't try, but we show people that not only adults have a voice or, like, you know, or have a say in things. Um, youth are also part of it. Um, we also have a voice, and we like to be spoken out to because uh, there's, it's our generation that's getting affected and generations are yet to, to come. Uh, and I have been um, on Nick News, if any of you have seen that show or anything like that. Um, I have been on Nick, Nickelodeon. Uh, me and Jessica, uh, we basically talked about the different um, contaminants that are found in um, water supply uh, around the Tulare County. Uh, we also talked about how um, well, our water district um, sent us notices to our house that says that our water is contaminated with nitrates, it's contaminated with DVCP, but yet on the notice it says that it's not an immediate risk, that you shouldn't have to go buy bottled water, but yet if you've been drinking that water for many years, there's a possibility that you'll be diagnosed with cancer. And so it's kind of ridiculous to me that they send us these notices saying that it's a possibility. The years are passing, and people are drinking this water, and what are the consequences for them? Being diagnosed with cancer. And um, it's something that's really hard to take in. Um, I've also uh, had the privilege to go up to Reading, where um, we met up with um, a tribe, a Native American tribe called Winnemum Wintu, and we uh, we're able to see how they, um, what, how water is really important to them. Like for them, water, water is where they came from. Like they came from the middle of the river. Like that's what they believe in. 
and to see that um, communities around the U.S. and California are having these problems with contaminated water. It's just hard for them to know that this is going on, and yet we're in a very rich country where this you wouldn't really expect this to be in the U.S., but yet it is. Um, what else? <laughs> Uh, um, well, yeah, at school as well, I'm not able to drink the water. It's contaminated with nitrates. And for a person that's athletic, you have to obviously be drinking a lot of fluid. Um, so what I do is I take my own bottle of Gatorade. I take my own bottle of water because I don't want to be drinking that contaminated water. Um, at school, I've also had students talk to me, oh my gosh, I saw you on Nick News. And I'm just like, yeah, and like, what do you do? Or, or what, do you, what are you working in? Or, Can I be a part of it? And I tell them, yeah, you, you're able to be a part of it if you want to. And um, I tell them that it's located, the office is located in Visalia, and I give them information, but yeah. Um, also, uh, uh, I've also gone up to Sacramento and uh, we've talked to senators and have like tried to have them pass different um, bills that are supporting the right to having safe drinking water. Um, I've also gone to um, New York where I met up with a different um, I went up with, I met up with diff, with a lot of different um, groups of youth where they also have similar problems or they have um, different issues that are environmental. Um, I've also gone down to Malibu as well, where that's where um, I met up with at first the, the that's where I first met the winnow and went to. Uh, it, I'm sorry. Just <laughs> um, it's just hard for me to have to live through this and having to have lived through it all my life is just hard because knowing that um, there's a possibility that my friends or some of my family members will be, will be diagnosed with cancer, it's just something that's really hard for me. Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay, I have a question for you all. Um, how many of you think that, well, how many of you would like to drink this water? Not very many, right? Let's just say that this glass of clear water was filled with my tap water. You would actually think that this would actually be safer to drink, but in reality, it's this one. Um, the reason for that being is that this one is just, it looks, yeah, it's ugly, it smells really bad, but um, <laughs> the, my contaminated water would actually be a lot worse if you drank it, uh, but now also Ducor is now also contaminated with nitrates, so it just goes to show that the contamination is spreading and you know, there's just something that has to be done. And that's why I'm here, is because I wanted to share with you what I have to go through and what my work is, and just to show you that not only adults have a voice, that also youth have a voice and have a say in things. So. <laughs>
Um, we are based in Visalia, and we focus on working with communities in the San Joaquin Valley, but we've also found that many of the challenges that we work on in the San Joaquin Valley are also issues in places like the Central Coast, down in Coachella, um, and even in small communities within urban areas like Maywood in LA. Um, so this is not unique to the San Joaquin Valley, but certainly we are at ground zero of, um, in terms of the number of drinking water systems without safe drinking water on an ongoing basis. Okay. So um, as Joanna said, this is um, another one of our activists, um, Maria Elena. Um, you know, the reality is that every day um, families have to turn on their tap and worry about whether their water, um, they're going to have uh, water that's safe to drink, whether their kids are going to have um, water that's safe to drink in um, schools. Um, depending on the contaminant, they worry about exposures when they're showering. Um, and what, you know, what are these, um, what are the long-term consequences? Um, and many communities are dealing with this for um, up to a decade or more without safe drinking water. So this idea that, that chronic contaminants um, and things that aren't considered acute um, mean that it's not really a problem is, um, you know, is certainly not, not comforting to communities that year after year find themselves without safe water. Um, and, you know, as, as, our, as was said, communities are having to spend um, a huge amount of money to buy alternative water supplies um, in addition to paying for water that they can't drink um, year after year. And, um, and there's health impacts to this, there's economic impacts, and there's also just, you know, the, the very real stress of living without safe drinking water and contaminants coming into your home um, every day. So you can go ahead. We're at the Community Water Center, this is kind of wonky, but um, we're, we, really, we believe that, um, that clean water is a human right and that it shouldn't be just a privilege for um, those that can afford it. And um, in our experience with communities, we, we believe that um, there's four main components to securing the human right to water. You have to have a safe source, um, a safe and reliable water source. You have to have adequate infrastructure. You, you have to have the institutional capacity to, um, to support affordable and um, accountable water systems. And most importantly, you have to have community power to hold that, um, to, to secure those other things um, and to ensure that it continues. You can go to the next one. Um, we, in the San Joaquin Valley, we have um, contaminated wells. We've, it, uh, it's, uh, you know, over about 95% of the communities rely on um, groundwater. Um, many are in, most are in agricultural areas or former agricultural areas where um, fertilizers and pesticides have been used for decades very intensively and, um, and ultimately get into the aquifers that we're, um, that we're pumping out. Um, there's, there, when we first started um, in 2006, there were, the, the, major, um, the major reason people didn't have safe drinking water most immediately was nitrate contamination. And nitrate is from fertilizers and pesticides, uh, sorry, fertilizers and animal manure, primarily, but also from septic and, um, and sewer systems. And when we first started, there were no um, protections, regulatory protections at all. Um, there were no requirements on dairies or um, irrigated agriculture from for, in, with regards to fertilizer. And, and so it's not surprising, therefore, that um, nitrate was the major contaminant and growing, um, especially because our area has huge dairies, um, growing numbers, growing concentrations, um, and an extremely intensive agriculture. And um, so, so one of the, the very first things that we did with Agua was, and that we're continuing to do, is look at how do we address um, these sources of contamination. And keep going. Uh, communities also face inadequate and dilapidated infrastructure. Um, so this is Seville. Um, this is an old um, pipe 
and the new one that was put in. But um, you know, many communities were originally labor camps or didn't have and didn't have adequate infrastructure to begin with. Many communities we work with have things used like used oil field pipeline that's used as the delivery system for the drinking water in the community in Plainview. Um, and so, and it's very difficult for communities to get access to um, the funding needed to plan and implement new systems and new infrastructure. Um, you can go ahead. And one of the reasons for that is that we basically have a very segregated water um, institutional system in California. Um, on the local level, these are actually two different water districts. Um, <laughs> and this is the Tulare County Water District number one, and this is Alpa Joint Powers Authority. Um, you know, they're both in this, in this little trailer, um, and this is the drinking water providers. Um, in, in one tiny town, basically. Um, so this is fairly common with it, basically what we've had, the way that, that, um, that systems have developed is that um, once there's a system that is like a well that would be providing water for um, more than 25 people or 15 connections, it's, it's considered a public water system and now has to meet drinking water standards. Um, but there never has, it could be all, so that, that includes mobile home parks, that includes, um, you know, a, a, these are um, public districts that have been set up um, in the past to serve that area. Um, and so there's a whole different, there's all different types of systems that provide water. But with small systems, it's very common. And generally, it's, um, there's very little um, support or accountability. There's very little capacity, both in terms of what they call technical, managerial, financial capacity. So that's you know, technical expertise um, and managerial expertise. It's pretty much run by volunteers. Um, the only financial capacity is what they collect from, the only money that they have is what they collect in water rates. And when you've got 75 homes that are very low income, you can't collect that much money over the year. So you, don't, you can't hire a full-time manager or um, water operator. So, um, and, uh, and usually it's just local people trying to figure out how to run a water system on their spare time because um, they've all got a day job and that they're trying to keep their family afloat on. And so um, they're, you know, they often don't know things like you're supposed to follow the Brown Act, you're supposed to make records available, you're supposed to notify people before you increase their rates, you, how to set a budget, how to set rates. All of these things are, um, you know, things that, you know, are, are difficult to do and you need some, and you need some support. So, um, so this is so one of the big challenges is institutional challenge and this sort of human in piece that isn't just about engineering, and then um, then and then you know ultimately this really this is an EJ issue and I think you know it's not people in Beverly Hills that are paying with their health and their pocketbooks for water that they can't drink. Um, it's low-income communities. It's the most um, it's politically, um, you know, underrepresented communities that are facing uh, unsafe drinking water on a daily basis and unable to access um, funding sources, and um, that are generally getting the brunt of regulatory inaction in terms of protecting sources of drinking water. And so we really believe that um, community power and community voice is um, is what will what's necessary to um, ensure that that these dynamics change and that they can and that all of the other things whether it's institutional capacity infrastructure or source protection that all of those um, can be sustained you can go um, so um, let's see I will just to give you some um, a few case studies and I want to leave time for questions um, is we've got um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of communities. So Ducor, um, this is water from Ducor. It's one of the first communities that I worked in. Um, it, had, um, a, it had to shut down a well because of nitrate contamination. And the well, they dug deeper, and what they got was manganese and hydrogen sulfide. So it smells like rotten eggs, and it looks like 
um, not good stuff. And uh, it looks like Coca-Cola. It actually used to be blacker. Um, and it was um, when the community went to their local water board, they said, oh, it's fine. You know, um, you can use it to make coffee. And would like literally shut down and not have meetings all summer when, when community members were asking about this. And um, so one of the first area places that we worked was working with many of these um, uh, families to, to um, ensure that the drinking water system figured out what was going on and, um, and was able to address it. And, they, and actually, in this case, it was a um, relatively fast, easy fix because it turned out that they weren't it wasn't being operated appropriately. So they weren't flushing the lines in a way that um, was ensuring that uh, water, you didn't have high concentrations of manganese. And so, um, so, with, so that was kind of a e relatively easy fix. They didn't need a whole new well. Um, they didn't need a whole new treatment plant to address that problem. You can go to the next one. Um, in Tonyville, I know there's some folks looking at Tonyville, um, they actually get water um, from a, through, in a surface water treatment plant through the Fryant-Kern Canal. They're one of the few communities that get surface water. Um, but the Fryant-Kern Canal, um, this mostly is for irrigation. And um, it will um, go down for maintenance every about three years. And at that point, they don't have that source of drinking water. And so instead, they, ha they have to rely on well water. And the well water there is contaminated with nitrates and perchlorate, um, which is also in rocket fuel, but also is, um, was contaminated in a number of um, fertilizers that were used um, in, on citrus in the area. And so... Um, they, so, so, but, and they've also started in their treatment plant um, to have disinfectant byproducts. So there's also other violations going on in terms of surface water, um, surface water treatment violations as well. Um, and you can go ahead. Um, Tuleville, we already talked about. You can keep going. Um, and keep going. Okay, so I, what I wanted to talk about quickly in the last few minutes is, um, is solutions. So we really believe that, um, that the most important solution is that we build community power to, uh, um, to make the system work the way it should and to ensure that everyone has access to safe, clean, affordable drinking water and that these things aren't gonna change unless you have a united, strong voice for, um, from those impacted, holding decision makers and our government and, um, you know, and, and our system accountable to work the way it should. Um, and so this was a group of, um, Agua was originally formed with about, I think there was, there's about 17 communities all impacted without safe drinking water. There's also Youth for Agua, a number of youth representatives and a separate youth group that's, that does, um, that's part of the actions. Um, you can keep going. Um, they've done a number of lawsuits and, and protests um, and participation in hearings at the Regional Water Quality Control Board to try and ensure that the Regional Water Quality Control Board is supposed to be, is protecting our drinking water sources. Um, they, as I said, they weren't doing this for, for um, the major sources of contamination in our area. Um, we, we, find, we do now have a dairy permit um, that has requirements specifically for groundwater and we're able and we have um, they're developing right now for the first time ever requirements on irrigated ag to protect groundwater so there's been huge movement um, from zero protections to now um, regulatory uh, framework that at least we can work on enforcement um, and keep going I know we're almost done um, the the um, there also needs to be work from the ground up looking at how we can develop um, solutions that help communities partner with each other to address the economies of scale and figure out what those solutions are. So do the planning and secure the funding in a more united way. And so we've just started this effort in the Tulare Lake Basin. So there's four counties and it's, it's a, um, planning study basically but it's bringing to, it has a whole stakeholder process that's bringing together communities from throughout the Tulare Lake Basin um, to develop um, regional solutions for water and wastewater challenges and the idea is that um, you know we're all facing many of the same problems 
and we're not going to be able to solve it isolated going community by community, but if we look at how communities might be able to um, join together, whether it's through consolidation or agreements to be able to share resources, share, um, create more economy of scale um, that we'll be able to get to, um, to more, to, to better solutions. And the last thing is um, we're, We've also been really active at the state level in trying to get um, recognition for the human right to water in California. There's a bill package that was passed last year that um, four out of five bills passed this year. Um, the, the main policy bill is, um, is up again this year and is one that we're trying to see successful this year. And there's a host of other bills that are working to implement that here in California. Um, so. That's, some, that's sort of an ongoing, um, an ongoing effort that Agua and um, many of our community partners have been leading. So, thank you. Um, well, that was absolutely terrific and really educational for me and, and everybody here. So I'd love to ask, um, uh, a, a first question, and then we'll open it up to the audience for at least 10 minutes of questions, right? Um, so, and maybe, hopefully this is an easy one. So I know Carolina um, discussed the, the, um, the, uh, the fact that the small size of water systems alone is not determinative of uh, contamination levels, that race is a huge part of it. And I'm gonna guess that, that poverty, these institutional challenges related specifically to poverty are one of the main drivers for that racial um, showing. Uh, but, um, but we can see through your comments, Laurel, that these institutional capacity challenges are, are um, most acute in small systems. So is, um, I mean, and we missed your solution slide, unfortunately. I would, have, I would love to see it again, actually, as we talk. But, um, but uh, is scaling up and sort of uniting these smaller community water systems with the, um, with the larger and the nearest um, water systems the, the appropriate answer? Or are most of the communities you're working with too spatially isolated for that to be realistic? And either of you can be. <laughs> So yeah, on that, on that question, um, in particular, I mean, what, you know, what we've seen is that in other states, um, they have developed a variety of different models for scaling up that doesn't mean everything needs to be connected by a pipe. And so um, there could be um, a sort of a, there's one where it's an alliance of all of these different water districts. And it's really, what they're doing is combining their income and their expertise and their costs in a way that reduces costs and, and scales up the economy of scale um, to address those issues without necessarily having to connect everyone by pipe, which would be very expensive in really distant communities. So, that, so that's something that we're looking at. Um, I haven't seen it done very much here, but I will say actually a number, if you think about it, um, Visalia is actually served by a private water company, Cal Water, and that's essentially what they do. I mean, they're a company, they operate all these water systems around the, um, the state, and that's what, you know, they sort of pool the resources from all of those into one to be able to help themselves be profitable. Um, and so I think that there's a lot of promise to that. I, I don't know that it's the right answer for every community, and we really believe that, you know, there. Every community is different, so it's um, it's not going to be a one size fits all. But that, but we're hopeful that this process will help, um, that we can help facilitate solutions from the ground up, so that communities can figure out what is the right fit for them, um, and be able to. I mean, one of the real privileges with this project is having the time and space to be able to look at that and step out of the boundaries that have already been created and look at what what actually would make sense and have some funding to be able to do the studies that help people make good decisions about that because. It's very hard to change existing institutions without really good information about what it would mean. You know, what, what would that mean for my water bill? Kind of bottom line for a lot of people. What would that mean for reliability? Um, and it's hard to, it, without money and expertise to be able to help um, do the analysis that you need to do, people don't have that information and then these sort of tough decisions aren't gonna get made.
Yes, Antonio. Oh, so that, that was a very just technical side note, which is interesting actually. So I used uh, water quality sampling from Department of Public Health, and even though every water system is supposed to monitor and send those monitoring results into Department of Public Health, the records, there were so many missing records for small water systems. So there's about 65% of the systems in the valley are small, under five, serving under 500 people, but in the sample, it was 37%. So it's interesting from the regulatory side because there's a piece of information missing, partly because of this institutional challenge where we don't even have data for the small systems which have some of the biggest challenges. By the Tuleville study, do you mean the, the nitrate? Um, yeah, I mean, I think, so the question was, and correct me if I, if I didn't get it, if, if the nitrate study, the findings are sort of proof, proof that there is a disparity in Yeah, I mean, I think we're satisfied from the perspective when I started working with Community Water Center on developing that study, uh, what I was hearing from on the ground was that we know, you know, and as Joanna was saying, we know in specific communities there's problems, but when those communities go tell policymakers we have a problem here or there, the policymakers were sort of dismissing that as a case-by-case situation. And so this study, by looking at all eight counties and including any system, it actually got at a, a, a region-wide finding that it's not just, you know, one community here and one community there, but there's a general trend of this disparity. So in that sense, I think I feel satisfied that this captures a trend in the valley. Um, in terms of next steps, I have a few different research areas that I'm thinking about, but one is to actually think of the cumulative health impacts related to drinking water. So what happens when you look at um, multiple drinking water contaminants and what people are exposed to, or which are the communities that face exposure to multiple contaminants, whether it's water, air. There's UC Davis just finished a great study on that, but um, water wasn't included, so I'm hoping to integrate that. Yeah, it's interesting. We, um, if you really are interested, we have this lovely article that we wrote um, that is available. And, and I just also will say, I brought a few um, things about water and health in the valley and nitrate um, white paper that we did about um, health and nitrate in the valley that has some of Carolina's research. Um, and, um, but really for us, um, what what recognition of the human right to water is about is about empowerment. And it's about going, what, when we first started working in communities and we continue to see by a lot of, um, of the politi local politicians is that there's just acceptance that this is the way it is. We just, you know, we live in the San Joaquin Valley and so, um, you know, that's just what it's like to live here. You don't have safe drinking water, you gotta go buy bottled water. And, um, and so really what, started with was it being about, you know, when we working in communities, um, talking about uh, this isn't the way it is everywhere and it doesn't need to be this way. And actually, it's a human right. This is a basic human right. Everyone deserves to have safe, clean, affordable drinking water regardless of how much money you make. Um, and, and 
it's up to us to to make that happen. Um, and so. California on a policy level is that it's an opportunity for us to educate people about the fact that people don't have safe drinking water, um, help empower people to stand up and say, like Joanna, to say, like, I deserve safe drinking water, um, and, and everyone does. And, um, and then, you know, the bill itself, because we're not going to get past, a, we're not going to get a bill that really gives sort of a legal cause of action to every individual to have um, to like sue the state if they don't have um, safe or if they don't have um, you know safe clean affordable drinking water um, but what we can do is make sure that the state um, has a clear has clearly endorsed and recognized the human right to water as state policy and so that in the decision making processes that it does in different agencies whether it's Department of Public Health setting MCL standards or Department of Water Resources deciding about how to spend state money and funding for infrastructure um, or the state water board deciding about um, permits um, and regulations that it explicitly has to look at how they can further this policy of the human right to water in that decision making. So that's that's the intent of the bill um, currently out there, and that's and and so it's um, I think we really we we're not looking at it something as the state needs to provide as much as this is something that we need to recognize that we as a state believe in and are going to all be part of helping make happen. Question. There's one more in the audience. Yes, yeah, thank you. Um, that's one of the actually hard things about this issue is that um, you can't just sue the water provider for not providing safe water because that's really suing yourself. I mean, in most cases, it's like, You know, Tuleyville has a little water board that's a cooperative, and you, you're, all of the homeowners are paying into that with their daily with their rates, and that's the only thing that exists. So if you're suing that, all that's doing itself, if that makes sense. Um, so that really hasn't been a strategy that we've used, um, or or found, you know, as as the main one. So what we've, uh, you know, there are some cases where. For example, if in I know um, we've been co-counsel with CRLA down in a mobile home park in Coachella, um, where it's a private person deciding not to have a filter on the water system that has arsenic or something like that. You know, and, and I think that there are, um, ex, you know, there are places where it is appropriate to hold the water purveyor accountable. Um, but what we've what we've looked at is, um, you know, what are Basically, what are the root causes of why of why we're there? Why are we having to treat the water and not, you know, Tuleyville tried to drill a well all throughout the community and in the entire area and couldn't find safe drinking water, um, and that's because nitrate levels have been. Um, basically, we've allowed, you know, really intensive agriculture with no protections for groundwater, and so um, so we we have been. Um, we have sued the Regional Water Quality Control Board to try and get them to um, ensure that they're protecting groundwater. But one of the things that we really haven't done so much is um, is look at how to how to pay for cleanup of past stuff. And I know actually um, there's some people here, or at least um, Todd from Share Left. But there are there are um, organiza or organizations and law firms um, like Share Left that are doing um, some litigation on. Um, suing the manufacturers of pesticides and other, you know, sort of those those bigger bodies that have contaminated drinking water sources on behalf of water providers, um, but that's sort of a little bit different than the the customers suing the water providers themselves. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. I mean, I think I think it's something that needs to be done more of. It's not that um, it's not that easy, and um, you know, I think that there's in terms of things like nitrates, where there's a lot of non-point sources. It could be coming from many sources, and it's you know, it's hard to sort of show this exact, you know, the nitrate in this well is due to this exact thing. But um, 
but you know there there are cases like one of them right now is one two three TCP, which is a pest, you know something that was in a pest, pesticides that were used fumigants that were used that has been linked directly to um, the contamination that's in drinking water has been is very clearly linked to the um, specific um, fumigants manufactured by I think it's Shell and Dow or and so um, so in that case. Absolutely, they, that's who should be paying. I mean, and, and instead what's going on is that residents are paying both with their health and having to buy, um, you know, not having, uh, having to buy alternative water. So thank you to everybody who came today and to our fantastic panelists. So I hope that all of you will go out and support um, work like the Community Water Center or indeed Community Water Center itself, let's be candid. Um, and, uh, and pay attention to it and use your time as a student to mobilize your academic research in ways similar to Carolina's inspiring model of academic work and then that you will become lawyers um, approaching the, the fire that is Laurel Firestone and then that you will raise children as righteous and just as <laughs> Joanna Mendoza, so thank you.